Scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, and you will find this on page uh, 1033 in the Pew Bibles. Luke 13, starting at verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for this journey that you went on all those years ago the journey you went on for our sakes and for our salvation, but also to show us something about what it means to follow after you, to show us something about what it means to be truly human. And so we pray that you would open this word to us, that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear in a new way today, or perhaps in an old way that we've forgotten, what it is that you're saying to us and inviting us into. We pray this in your name, for your sake, and for the sake of a world that you love. Amen. So many interesting things just get left on the pulpit throughout the course of a week. So, turning toward trouble and suffering, Jesus certainly has not hidden from the fate that he knows awaits him. But nor has he rushed hurriedly toward it. Jesus has been busy since he set his face toward Jerusalem. He has sought hospitality from unlikely people. He has provided the opportunity for countless to sit at his feet and to learn from him. He's cast out demons. He's healed the sick. He has not been so focused on his own suffering as to miss the suffering that existed all around him. And it seems as though he is intentionally making the most of every step that he takes toward Jerusalem, making the most of every step that he takes as he seeks to offer good news in stories told and in sermons preached, and also good news in healing offered and food shared. But we've been in this season of Lent together for a little while. We've been tracking with Jesus' face turned toward Jerusalem for several weeks now, and the road toward Jerusalem has grown short. 
And despite this unhurried pace of Jesus, the trouble of Jerusalem and the suffering of the cross is not far from him now. Even those who surround Jesus are beginning to notice it, beginning to notice that there are traps and trouble waiting for Jesus that surely this teacher will fall into if he's not careful. Rumors now of a plot from Herod to kill Jesus have reached some Pharisees' ears, and he is encouraged now to flee, encouraged to stop what he's doing at the Jordan River, stop what he's doing on the road to Jerusalem, and run back to Galilee where he'll be safer, out of Herod's grip. Why should Herod want to kill Jesus? He's casting out demons. He's performing cures and miracles. Jesus is helping the very citizens who live within Herod's domain. He's improving the quality of life underneath Herod's rule, offering peace to people and in places where there had not been peace in some time. Really, Jesus' work, we could say, is not only good news for those who he encounters on this road, it's also good news for Herod, too. Because Jesus is inciting no rebellion against Herod, and in restoring people to full life and community, these people are less likely to seek out rebellion for themselves. Herod, we might think, should really appreciate what Jesus is doing here. He should get it. He should be glad for it. But he doesn't. Of course he doesn't. This is something I suspect that we've all experienced from time to time, when we realize that our hard work is going unnoticed and unappreciated. Unnoticed and unappreciated, in fact, by the very people who reap the benefits of it. And worse than unnoticed, they come to think that we're the problem. We're fired from our job. We're cut from the team. We receive the cold shoulder, and something inside of us tells us, they should be thanking me. You should be grateful for the work that I've put in, the hours that I've spent, the agony that I've endured. That's what got us to this point. That's why this is so good for you now. Jesus expected this kind of response from Herod, though. He gave it away earlier when he called Herod a fox, which I love. But he's probably not saying that Herod is foxy clever like our English idiom would lead us to believe. Jesus is probably saying, actually, that Herod is destructive. That's what foxes meant in the Hebrew worldview. Foxes meant destruction for a vineyard. Back in the book of Judges, there's a judge named Samson, and there's a story about how he caught 300 foxes, a mass of destruction, and then that not being enough destruction, he ties torches to their tails and sets them loose to wreak havoc on fields and vineyards. That's what Jesus is pointing to, destruction on destruction. That's what Jesus is evoking here, a person of chaos and wreckage. You know, I think if Jesus was speaking to us and to Herod in Toronto today, he might not use fox. He might more aptly call Herod a raccoon. 
Herod doesn't care the damage he'll cause. Herod doesn't care about the quality of Jesus' life and ministry because a fox is going to destroy the vineyard. A raccoon is going to wrestle with the lid of your green bin. Herod is going to try to kill Jesus. This is just what these things do. Honestly, though, it seems like Jesus doesn't really care about Herod. Jesus doesn't care about this threat to his life because he knows what's coming. He already knows the fate that will befall him, and it actually isn't Herod's executioner. It's Jerusalem. He sort of jokes about it. Jesus says, you know, can a prophet even die outside of Jerusalem? Has that ever happened before? I don't think so. Herod's no threat to me. Jesus right-sizes the paradigm. This isn't about Herod. Herod's a fox of a ruler, and Herod takes second place to Jerusalem. Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, tells the people seeking his help that he came first for the lost children of Israel. And Jerusalem is the jewel at the heart of Israel. Jerusalem is what Jesus' mission has always been about. Jerusalem's children are Jesus' focus, longing to be as a mother hen to them, gathering them in and caring for them. But they won't receive him. They won't see what he's doing for them. They won't open their eyes and their ears to God's love for them. They are going to reject him. They are going to kill him. Jerusalem and not Herod is the problem. And I think this is the real predicament and where this story gets really relatable. Because it doesn't matter what the person that you don't care about says about you. It doesn't matter to you that they don't appreciate what you're doing, that they're missing the point entirely. We all kind of expect that response from people like that. But it's different when it's the people that you love. When it's the people for whom you have sought their good at every turn, and they should know you well enough to know that is what you're doing for them. But they just don't. They don't get it. They don't see it. And that's when it stings. Jesus laments over a city that he loves, and in this pain of his life, we can surely see our own pain as well. Because we can remember our pain when we have tried to care for an estranged family member, swallowed our pride and sought out reconciliation only to be turned away and hurt again. We can remember our pain when perhaps we punished our children hoping to correct their ways and they didn't see it that way. And they said cruel words that cut in a way that only words from a child can. We remember our pain in the countless times when we felt misunderstood, like we'd given more attention and more compassion than we'd ever received in return. We remember the very pain of being a person in meaningful relationships in this very broken world. And we know that Jesus felt this too. The solace that we receive in the memory that Jesus felt that still same pain 
is in fact the same solace that Jesus offers to himself as he faces Jerusalem. Jesus knows that Jerusalem has killed the prophets before him, and he knows that Jerusalem will take his life as well. In that recognition, there is some small peace and comfort. Jesus, in fact, offers the same comfort to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So too, Jesus extends this promise to us that we are not the first to face this hard road. We are not the first to have all our loving and laboring and desiring the best for others to go unnoticed and worse, to receive scorn and rejection because of it. We are in very good company in this way because it is the very work of God and the very work of all of God's people. And I know, I feel it too, the feeling that this is a cold comfort. This is a weak salve because the sting of the reality is still there. But strangely, it does offer some peace to know that all this has happened before, that all this will surely happen again, to have this affirmation that if others have journeyed on this road, then we must be able to as well. But this passage isn't so much about Jesus' fate. He knows what's coming. And it isn't so much about Jesus' concern for his own suffering and trouble, because he's only giving voice to what God has felt since the fall. In this passage, we see Jesus flip the locus of concern away from himself, away from Pharisees that are worried about his well-being, people who want him to be safe and okay. And Jesus moves it toward Jerusalem. Jesus laments that his work has not been accepted and seen by the people he was sent to serve. And far more than that, he is concerned about what that will mean for Jerusalem itself. Concerned that in Jerusalem's resolute mission to hard-heartedly stone and kill the prophets, in rejecting Jesus himself, Jerusalem is setting itself on a path for destruction under the power of foxes like Herod. Jerusalem is relinquishing its invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb, evicting God from their presence. Their house, he says, is left to them. The temple is theirs, but God's not in it if they don't want him to be. Jesus, even in this moment of seeing how little others have received from his labors, is not pitying himself. He is concerned for the people who need his work the very most and cannot or will not receive it. Maybe this morning you are in a place in your spiritual journey where you're just checking Jesus out, feeling out the church, seeing how this will fit for you. And I want you to hear in this story of Jesus his very deep concern for you. That faced with the threat of death from one source and knowing the fate of death from another, he is concerned for the very people 
who will kill him. And he's concerned that they haven't known God. He desires that they should know God still. This morning, Jesus is not so much concerned about what you have done to hurt him, of the wrongs that you may have done in this world. That's not his first priority. His first priority is that you should hear him and know him and see his goodness to you. That in doing whatever it takes, he was seeking to invite you to know all this goodness, not for his sake, but for your own. On this road, Jesus knows that Jerusalem will not receive him. No matter what he said or what he did, he presses on to Jerusalem. And to still push on, I don't know, to me, it feels like hard, hard work. Because in our lives, at least in my life, I always use the hope that something might change to spur me on, to push me forward, to encourage my perseverance. The hope, perhaps, that your child will one day understand that your family will finally see your deep care and concern, that eventually all your hard work will pay off and you will enjoy the benefits. But Jesus here knows that's not going to happen, that the journey between where he is now and the cross in Jerusalem will not contain a sudden change of heart. His fate is fixed, and yet still he labors onward out of deep love and concern for these people. Still, Jesus perseveres despite all knowledge that would tell any rational person and any one of us that nothing he's doing matters anymore, that he should just give it up and go back to Galilee, or if he really must, just hurry along and get to the cross already because these days, these three remaining days, what's the point of the cures and the casting out demons? Nobody's going to receive this the way he wants. Jerusalem's not changing its mind. Don't spend three more days working for nothing worthwhile. And I think this thought crosses our minds more often than we'd like to admit. That nothing I'm doing is going to change anything. I pursue justice in my life and injustice flourishes all around me. I try to be a good steward of the earth with my few resources, and climate change and ecological collapse hastens around me. I seek to love my neighbor, and racism and nationalist ideologies rule the day in politics. Why keep pushing on? If God is just going to reconcile all things to himself, Let him do that. But for now, I'm done. There's nothing more I can do, and everything I try goes unnoticed, doesn't matter, changes nothing. Surely, if it's Jesus' death on the cross that matters, if it's his death that will initiate God's rule and reign, why spend two more days healing? Why weep over a city that is surely just a lost cause? Jesus cares not just for Jerusalem and Israel as cultural monoliths, but he actually honestly cares about the people on the way. 
He cares about the crippled woman who he meets, and he cares about a man who the Bible says was swollen in the next chapter. He cares about people who have been passed by and passed over, whose very existence has been unnoticed, and whose bearing of the image of God has been unappreciated by everybody around them. Jesus is in the work of noticing the value and the worth of each person on this road and not reinforcing the small value given to human life by the likes of Herod or Jerusalem or Rome, foxes, all. But I think there's something bigger here. There's a bigger reality that Jesus sees in this passage is pointing us to that Jesus understands the end goal too. He concludes his lament over Jerusalem by saying that there will be a day and a time when people will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus sees beyond his eminent rejection in Jerusalem to a time when surely they will accept him. He sees beyond the pain of the cross to a time when he will be honored by his father for all that he did to gather the lost children of Israel in. Every person healed along the roadside and every Pharisee judge in the Sanhedrin alike, they will all come to recognize the very work of God in Jesus' ministry and presence. So Jesus doesn't need Herod to appreciate what he's doing on the road. Jesus doesn't need Jerusalem's rulers to suddenly get it when they've never been able to understand before. He doesn't need these things because Jesus knows that his Father sees and understands, that God himself is grateful for Jesus' obedience and participation in the very work that he'd been doing all along, but now in human flesh, with hardened hands and calloused feet. So if the reality that somebody has felt this same way before is cold comfort to us, surely this assurance that God sees what we do, that God names good work, even the hard work that is rejected, and he promises the, that the pain we feel when nothing we do seems to matter at all, is a pain that will surely turn into joy in the celebration of God's coming kingdom. Surely we can see this and hear that it is the rest of the story, that this is the greatest consolation that Jesus can offer. So Jesus invites us too who now do God's very work on earth, who are stewards in the master's absence, Christ's body in this world, to look beyond the reality that our sowing is in tears and to trust that very truly one day we will reap with songs of joy, carrying the fruit of our labor. That at the end, when Jesus is seen for who he is, all who followed in this good way will be named as good and faithful servants and will take their seats at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Friends, Jesus was despised and rejected. His good work was seen as evil by foxes of rulers and the people who should have understood the most. Jesus understands what it means when all your labor feels fruitless, 
when your hard work goes unnoticed. Jesus knows what it's like to have your motives questioned, your good intentions despised, your genuine love and care to be returned with malice and even violence. And Jesus has endured all these things, weeping not for himself, but for those ones who he still loves. And he promises to us and to this whole world that it will not be this way in his Father's coming kingdom. That in the coming kingdom, every good work will be rewarded. Every hard act of love will be seen for what it truly was. Every faithful servant will be recognized by their master who has always seen the good things done in his name always valued the faithfulness which bears much sorrow in this world and has prepared a place of honor in his presence. There's a reason that the Holy Spirit produces in us the fruit of patience, and not just patience, long-suffering. Because we need long-suffering to walk this difficult road to not see the fruit of your work in this day and in this week is hard, and it feels like a curse. To be despised and rejected by the very ones you love is heartbreaking, and the Holy Spirit of God invites you to receive in faith the promise that these things will not always be this way, that your Father even now sees your labor, knows your work, appreciates your sacrifices, and one day will name you as good, as faithful, as a co-worker with Christ in the vineyards of this world that no fox will destroy, that no thief can steal from, that no other kingdoms can overcome, that very truly we can press on because the reward for our work is assured, the victory already won, the harvest is most truly promised, that Jesus really has overcome this world, and we can all take heart. And we can do these things in the power and for the glory of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray together. Good and gracious God, you have given each of us labor to do in this world. Work which provides for our needs and our families, caregiving responsibilities for children and parents and friends. You've given each of us the opportunity to share good news, and you've gone before us in the way of that news falling on deaf ears, on hard hearts salt and light being rejected and shut in. And so today, God, we recommit to you the work of our hands, the pain of our hearts, the longing we have for a better world which we know we cannot produce by ourselves. We commit these things to you, trusting that you see our work, that the things you've given to us to accomplish will be accomplished in your time that you have not forgotten us, but you are working toward a harvest of joy and celebration. 
So we pray you would help us at all times to know your shining face of approval on us and our work, to receive from you the encouragement we need to make every step on our journeys meaningful and fruitful, all for the sake of your kingdom in this world. Amen.